Good morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. It's good to be with you in worship this morning, and greetings as well to those worshiping with us online. I would ask you to find the attendance pads that are in each of the pews, fill those out, pass them to others worshiping beside you this morning. As you do that, make sure that you pay attention to your bulletin insert that has the announcements on it, several things coming up. Uh, especially tomorrow. Tomorrow night is the uh, Showers for Blessings, and also tomorrow night is the Men of Faith. So there's something for everybody tomorrow. Uh, so note those. Uh, the, there's an announcement about the Father's Day Carnation Sale that will be beginning soon. Uh, dates for Vacation Bible School that you can go ahead and get on your calendar now. Uh, one thing that's uh, announcement that's not printed in the bulletin, but I want to make you aware of, and if you're on the email list, you, you saw this email uh, earlier in the week, and that is that the first Sunday of June, we are going to be returning to one worship service, and so the time is, is going to change. We will be uh, in here in the sanctuary at 1030 uh, for worship. That's beginning the first Sunday of June, everybody together in here at 1030 for worship. We're still working out the details as far as uh, Sunday school and uh, fellow, possible fellowship time. We'll be getting those uh, details to you in the next couple of weeks, but I want to let you know now so that you can uh, begin uh, planning accordingly. We are uh, in this place to offer God our worship and our praise, so let us be in that spirit of worship as the choir presents the music of the introit. Try it again. There we go. Good morning. Please rise for the call to worship. Printed in your bulletin. Come to praise God, all you faithful people. Come, for God welcomes you and offers to draw close. Sun and moon and stars shine in praise to God. God created them and established for each a place. Mountains and hills, trees and animals praise God. 
Let all the rulers of the earth do so as well. And our opening hymn is In Christ There Is No East or West. It's printed in your United Methodist hymnal number 548. I'm so sorry. You may be seated. (laughs) Forgot my assignment. (laughs) Please join me in our opening prayer printed in your bulletin. We praise you, O God, and celebrate your presence with us. Your glory fills all heaven and earth, all time and space. Your gifts surround us and dwell within us. We are your children. Come to wipe away our tears and comfort us in our distress. Come to heal our divisions and overcome our prejudices. Come that we might be loved into discipleship. Amen. And you may remain seated for our prayer hymn, Jesus United by Thy Grace, in the hymnal number 561.
I'm going to invite us into a moment of silence, and during this time of silence, I would ask us to remember uh, those whose lives were lost yesterday uh, in the, the shooting in Buffalo, and pray for those families, and also let us in the silence lift up our own uh, prayers and concerns to God. Let us pray. Lord, we live in a fallen world that is rent by sin, torn apart by hate and violence, causing so much destruction and devastation. But Lord, we know that still you are God, that you are a healing God, that you are one who binds up all of our wounds and you are one who calls us into communion with yourself and into peace and fellowship with all of your children, all of your creation. So may we be agents of your peace in this world. May we be servants of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you will cleanse our hearts of any lingering evil, any hate towards our brothers and sisters, that you would fill our hearts with your pure and perfect love until we can do nothing but live according to your grace. Lord, may you work in this world and may you work especially in this church. Bind us together as one, as brothers and sisters in Christ as we witness to the gospel, as we strengthen and encourage one another, as we minister to those around us who are in need, so they will experience a God of love and grace and power. May we all present ourselves to you in service and in love. We pray this in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue to worship God through the giving of our tithes and offerings as the ushers come to wait upon us.
Please join me in the prayer of dedication. Thank you, gracious God, for making your home with us and claiming us as your own people. We dedicate ourselves and our gifts toward the new world you are creating among us, a world where peace emerges from mutual respect and honest encounters. May your love be reflected in our attitudes and actions when we are together and when we are scattered. Amen. Please be seated.
Our scripture lesson today is taken from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was raised on Dr. Seuss. Green Eggs and Ham, Sam I Am, The Grinch, whom we heard a lot about this past Advent season. Horton was one of my favorites. The way he sat on that egg no matter what until it finally hatched, Horton was a hero to me. But my very favorite Dr. Seuss story of all time has always been the Sneetches. You know the one about the Star belly sneeches who had bellies with stars and the plain belly sneeches who had none upon theirs. My wife did not grow up on Dr. Seuss. His stories never quite struck her fancy, and so when she had her own children growing up, Dr. Seuss' books were not among those things that she read to them. This became apparent in our Disciple Bible Study class. I think we must have been discussing a, a Bible passage where one group of Christians was thinking that they were better than another group of Christians, and one of our group members said, it's like the Sneetches. Everybody in the class smiled and nodded, except for Laura, who looked around the room like, I don't know what he's talking about. What's a Sneetch? Well, if you are like my wife and you don't know what a Sneetch is, 
They are these creatures in this story by Dr. Seuss. They were divided into two groups, those who had stars on their bellies and those who did not have stars on their bellies. For those who had stars, it was a point of pride. It showed them to be the best kind of sneeches on the beaches. For those who had none, it was a point of exclusion. They were not allowed to play ball with the star belly sneeches. They were not allowed at the Frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts. When I was a child, listening to this story over and over again, and then delighting in reading it myself when I was able to read, it never occurred to me that there was anything political about it. Although Dr. Seuss wrote the story in 1961, a time in American history when there were a whole lot of distinctions being drawn between various segments of the population, it wasn't just Frankfurter roasts and marshmallow toasts that certain people were not allowed to attend. It was swimming pools, and lunch counters, and restrooms, and drinking fountains. It was areas of housing and access to certain jobs. Dr. Seuss, in this delightful children's story, was speaking to a society bent on drawing lines between people, showing who is better and who is not, who is welcomed and who is excluded. Dr. Seuss showed them in this simple story that everyone could understand how childish and distorted such thinking is. When I was a child, absorbing this story into my ways of thinking about the world and about other people, it also didn't occur to me that there was anything religious about it. There's no mention of faith or God in the story. But the distinction drawn between the star belly sneeches and the plain belly sneeches was clearly a matter of doctrine for them. And the story is a perfect illustration of the distinctions that were drawn in the early church between those who were circumcised and those who were not. The circumcised Christians were the sneeches with stars. They were assured that they were the best kind of Christian. In fact, they were assured that they were the only kind of Christian that counted. Any man who was not circumcised could not be a part of God's community. God's law forbade it. Even before God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, going all the way back to his covenant with Abraham, God had decreed it. Genesis 17, 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And the law given to Moses repeated it again and again. Those who are a part of God's people have the physical proof of it in their circumcision. Those who are uncircumcised are cut off. They're not allowed. They're no good. Besides that, the law of Moses went even further in distinguishing God's people from the rest of the world. That's what the dietary laws were all about and many of the other laws that had to do with ritual purity. In modern days, some people have suggested that there were health reasons behind the kosher food food laws. I'm not convinced by that. There were certain things that Jews were forbidden from eating that had no health risks associated with them at all and other things that they were allowed to eat that I would never dream of putting in my body. God makes it clear in giving these food laws that the point of these laws is not to make them healthy, but to make them holy, to make them holy, to to make them set apart from other peoples and other nations, to set them out, stand, stand out as different. The food laws 
were simply another way of showing who had stars on their bellies and who did not. Because you might not be able to see what's under their clothing, but you can always see what's on their plates. These two distinctions that define the Jewish people, the food laws commanded of Moses and the practice of circumcision commanded of Abraham, these were two of the most important ways in which Jewish people knew who they were and showed that they were different and better than others. This is how they proved that they belonged to God. So naturally, these two distinctions got carried over into the church because remember, the entire first generation of Christians were Jewish. They never thought of their Christianity as replacing Judaism. They were Jewish through and through, and they continued to live as they always had, by the Jewish law. And they assumed that all of the same markers that had always distinguished between who were God's people and who were not still applied. After all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. They didn't yet know him to be savior of the whole world, or if they were beginning to catch a glimpse of that, they still believed that he would save the whole world by making them all Jewish Christians like them. That was the order. First become Jewish, then you can become Christian. That was the perspective that Peter had going into this section of Acts that we're looking at today. That really was the perspective of all Christians going into this section of Acts. But God was about to show them a new way of being, a new way of defining who they were and what they were about. Our reading for today from chapter 11 is where the whole thing gets reported back to the leaders back in Jerusalem. And Peter reports to them the strange events that had happened back in chapter 10. It was there that two visions were given by God, one to Peter and the other to a Gentile named Cornelius. Cornelius, we are told, was a devout man who feared God. Gentiles such as him were referred to as God-fearers. They believed in the God of the Jews. They knew the truth that all the other so-called gods were made up. They were false gods and idols. They knew that Yahweh alone is the one true God. But they were not, these God-fearers, they themselves were not included as a part of God's people. Why not? Well, it's simple, because they were Gentiles. Gentiles were out. The law was very clear. In order to be among the community of God, you had to be Jewish. Now, that didn't mean you had to be born Jewish. You could convert. But converting didn't just mean believing. It meant becoming. It, it meant submitting yourself to the circumcision of Abraham and living under the entire law of Moses. There were a lot of Gentiles, like this man Cornelius, who weren't quite ready for all that. They believed in God. They feared God. But they did not know that they too could be saved by God. They did not yet know that in Christ, God was inviting them to be equal members in this new community of faith in the church. Cornelius received a vision. An angel of God told him to send men to Joppa to fetch 
for him a man named Simon, who was called Peter. That was all the angel told him. It's all Cornelius knew. He didn't know who Peter was. He probably didn't even know what a Christian was. They weren't called Christians then. They were simply referred to as followers of the way. But the way had not yet been revealed to Cornelius. That's why Peter was to come to proclaim the way of Christ to Cornelius and the others in his house. The next day, in Joppa, before Cornelius's men arrived, Peter, too, had a vision. Peter had gone up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry. You ever have that happen to you? You sit down to pray, and all of a sudden your stomach starts growling, and you, you can't focus on your prayers because all you can think about is how hungry you are. Happens to me a lot. That's what was happening with Peter that day. So he asked whoever's house it was that he was sitting on top of to fix him some lunch. And while lunch was being prepared, he tried to pray some more. That's when the vision came. He saw a sheet coming down from heaven, and on that sheet were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. In other words, things that no faithful Jew like Peter would ever consider eating. Not because he didn't like them, but because they were forbidden to him, forbidden by God. In God's directly revealed and written word, God himself had said, Thou shalt not eat these. And here was an angel of God telling him, Go ahead and eat them. When Peter responded, By no means, Lord, he was not trying to be obstinate. He was trying to be obedient, as he had tried to be obedient throughout his life. I'm sure he was thinking to himself, this is a test. Here I am, trying to pray, and I'm grousing about how hungry I am. So God puts all this forbidden food in front of me and says, go ahead, have some. It's a test. It's a trap. It must be. But it wasn't. It wasn't a test. God was trying to show Peter something in this vision, and what God was revealing in this vision went far beyond food. What God has called clean, you must not call profane. That's what God answered when Peter called this food unclean, profane, forbidden. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Three times this happened. Three times God told him to eat. Three times he refused, calling these things unclean and profane. Three times the heavenly voice responded, what God has made clean you must not call profane. Three times. Hmm. That seems to be a thing with Peter. Three times he denied knowing Jesus. Three times the risen Christ asked him, do you love me? Three times this conversation with the angel was repeated. And then just as suddenly as the sheet came down from heaven, it was taken back up again. Curiously, before Peter actually did what the angel was telling him to do, he never did get anything to eat, a fact that bothers me far more than it should. In any case, as soon as the vision ended, while Peter was still trying to puzzle out what it meant, Cornelius's men showed up. Acts 10, 19 to 20 says, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, 
the spirit said to him, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them to you. Isn't that interesting? While Peter was still thinking about this vision, wondering what it meant, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. The Holy Spirit was answering him, showing him what that vision was about, and it wasn't about food. It was about people. It was about Cornelius and and others like him whom Peter up to that very moment would have called profane unclean, unholy, but who God called his children. It was about the lines that that we all draw between ourselves and others. Who's in and who's out? Who's welcomed and who is to be shunned? Who is righteous and who is a sinner? The vision was about the fact that God was making a new community, not based on ethnicity and not based on works, but based on faith, based on Christ. The marker, the sign of this new community, it would not be rigid adherence to the Old Testament law, who among us has faithfully fulfilled all of those 613 commands. No, the marker the sign of this new community would be the presence of the Holy Spirit leading one to repentance and faith in Jesus. I have to wonder who we in the church today might be excluding, just as the first Christians were excluding the Gentiles, I'm not going to answer that for you, but I can't help but to wonder. I can't help but to pray about it. Who are the ones with stars on their bellies, and who are the ones without? And should it even matter? You know, the real antagonist in Dr. Seuss's story, it's not either set of Sneetches, either the ones with stars or the ones without. The real antagonist in the story is a man named Sylvester McMonkey McBean. He came along and decided to profit off of the Sneetch's prejudice toward one another. First, he built a star-on machine, which put stars on the bellies of the plain belly Sneetch's so that they couldn't tell them apart anymore. But the original star belly Sneetch's didn't like that. They, They still believed that they were superior and they needed a way to show it. So then Sylvester McMonkey McBean built a star off machine so that those who had previously been star bellies could now be plain bellies and claim that 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 was now what was in and that they were still the ones on top. And pretty soon the Sneetches were going round and round, first through one machine, then through the other, stars on again, stars off again, each time paying Sylvester McMonkey McBean handsomely for the privilege until he had collected all that they had. And he drove away laughing, you can't teach a Sneetch. Sylvester McMonkey McBean. It's a funny name. The Bible gives him a funny name, too. Beelzebul. Also known as Satan, or the devil. And this is one of his favorite tricks in the world. He preys upon and profits from our prejudices toward one another. He encourages our divisions. He sorts us into tribes. 
and he laughs at us the whole time. And even we in the church fall for it. Even we who are supposed to know better, even we who are told over and over and over again that we are all made one in Christ Jesus, still we need to know. But are you a liberal or are you a conservative? Are you for contemporary worship or are you for tradition? The devil stokes those debates, and he encourages those divisions, and he drives away laughing because he knows that as long as he can keep us focused on these things, drawing our battle lines, establishing our camps, planting our flags on what divides us, then he has won. As long as I see someone else for whom Christ died as my enemy, then the devil has won. As long as I see another person or group of people or party or persuasion as my adversary, then I have lost sight of who is the true adversary. And he is laughing at me the whole time. Thankfully, Dr. Seuss doesn't end the story there. And neither does the Bible. When Jesus hung on the cross, the devil laughed because he thought he had won. When the devil sowed division in the early church, he laughed because he thought he had won. When he sows division in the church even today, he laughs thinking that he has won. But we know that he has not. We know that Jesus has won through his death and resurrection. The crucifixion was not the triumph that Satan thought it was. Rather, it was his defeat proven in the resurrection. And throughout history, time and time again, the risen Christ has continued to break down those barriers that seek to divide God's people. In the first century church, he did it for the Jews and the Gentiles. In the 20th century church, he began the work of healing between the races, a work that continues even to this day. What more distinctions remain? What more walls of division need to be brought down? In the end, God will do it. He will win. In the end, God will overcome all that divides us. Because in the end, Christ, will be all in all. Dr. Seuss puts it like this. But McBean was quite wrong, I'm quite happy to say. The Sneetches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that Sneetches are Sneetches and no kind of Sneetch is the best on the beaches. That day, all the Sneetches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon Nars. Might the same be said of us. In Christ, we are all one. Amen. I invite you to stand now as you're able for our closing hymn. It's, your, it's an insert in your bulletin.
They'll know we are Christians by our love. and please remain seated until the choir has recessed out. As we go from this place, may we go remembering that we are one. We go our separate places, but we go as one in Christ, united by the Holy Spirit. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.